Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and apparently infallible figure, Thea Lenardutzi. Thea, one of your fellow editors, Catherine said in my request for dirt that she had some, but she won't share it with me. And then I, I, I hear today you went out for lunch with everyone from the office and only ordered chips. Yeah, and, and one small beer. That, as a foodie, is that acceptable, do you think? Probably not. I had an orange when I got back to the office. It was an express meal. Express meal, chips and orange. <laughs> Look, if anyone does have any dirt on Thea, please do tweet me at Stig Abel. Um, we're also... <laughs> Sorry, Lucy, could you just pass me the copy of the employer's handbook? I think, I, I think it's okay. I, I, I checked... <laughs> I'm an employment lawyer, I just oh. like to say I'm very much on the case here. <laughs> Freelance employment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy, we're going to come to your multiple identities no, I'll, very shortly. I'll be quiet. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, I want to talk about the future of the podcast because we're going to have a relaunch potentially as early as next week to celebrate its success. Um, we're going to probably, well, we are definitely going to rename it, aren't we? The name is lovely and it's your idea. So what is the new name of this podcast going to be? Instantly forgotten it. No, I'm joking. It's Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon. And that is because? That is, uh, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it references Oscar Wilde because he said, of course, um, with Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, how could I not be happy? And I'm not, I'm not clear on when precisely he said it, I'm, I'm presuming, I mean, he knew all about those things. Uh, I'm presuming he said it after Reading Jail. Um, it's a lovely statement. Actually, and so that's what the podcast can be called, Freedom Books, Flowers I like and the to Moon. think it gives a, a sense of our uh, range. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> I mean, it's going to have its own Twitter feed and the like. So we will, it will probably be next week. So next time you listen to this, it may be retitled, relaunched and sounding a little jazzier. If you are listening and don't already subscribe to the TLS, here is an offer for you. If you Google TLS subscriptions, click on the page and type pod one into the offer code bit, you can get six issues for just six pounds, which is value for money, I think. And I've got to remind you also, if you want to support this podcast, whatever it's called, please do review us on iTunes as well. Coming up on this week's show, it's our musical special in the TLS this week, curated, if I'm allowed to use that modish verb, which I don't think I am, by our arts editor and quondam indie pop miserabilist, Lucy Dallas. As regular listeners will know, Lucy famously does not read the TLS newspaper, so it is a rare moment indeed to discover an edition in which she has not only read it, but edited many of the articles. And on that basis, we thought she should join us 
for the podcast. So welcome, Lucy. Thank you very much. As usual, I disagree with or would have issue with, I would say... Speak to my lawyer. Yes, 75% of what you've said there, which I think is a bit less than last time. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm doing better. You are the arts editor. You have, I am. And you have commissioned these pieces and it is a music special. Yes, all, all of, of those that's true. facts yeah. are true. DJ Taylor once has said to me at a dinner that his dearest wish would be to write about the literary sensibility of Paul Weller and the jam. And seeing as we're having a music issue... It has come to pass. He's going to join us shortly. And the issue opens with Stephen Brown taking an overview of books on the subject of the importance of music, its theory and practice. So to the jam and Paul Weller, which would be a truly hip subject if this were 1976, the year the band could be found recording their debut album In the City. 40 years on, it's striking both how the songs and songwriting have endured and also intriguing how they are written and constructed by young men without the benefit of a lengthy education, with an effect redolent of the football terrace, but also who managed to produce something recognisably literary too. DJ Taylor has made the case in the TLS this week for the buried literary sensibility of the jam and joins us now. David. Hello. Perhaps you might... Uh, give us a bit of context. There may be some listeners, indeed there are some TLS editors and podcasters who were not born when The Jam first appeared. Yes, well, it, it, it really was 40 years ago that I think I first saw them on the Mark Boland show it was in those days, and he was shortly to die, poor chap, Mark Boland, but at that point he was a rather faded glam rock star. And suddenly here were these three extraordinary young men, I mean, not much older than I was um, at the time. I was in the sixth, lower sixth at school, jumping around the stage like giant frogs wearing these CNA suits and black and white co-respondent shoes, they used to be called, producing this extraordinary furious, distinctively modern noise. But if you knew anything about English pop music, which I did, um, you're obviously borrowing from the styles of the 1960s. And their, their early stuff was very much influenced by The Who, by Pete Townsend, Small Faces, people like that. So they were, to me, as a 16-year-old, they were both wonderfully up to date. You know, they were the latest new thing of this new wave of British music that had just started up. But they were also recognisably sort of belonging to you know, English pop heritage as well. So you, you know, you you hit you hit with both barrels in 1977 with the jam. Make the brief case, I suppose, for the literariness of this stuff, because on one hand, as you say, it's sort of power pop music, mm. uh, but on the other, as your piece uh, goes into, why do you feel they're somehow literary? Well, the, the, literiness and pop music is, is an odd thing. Usually, um, a lot of pop music, um, the original British pop music of the 60s was a working class phenomenon. It was said at the time, if you're if you an East End, if you're an East Ender in the 1964-5, the only way to get on was either through playing football pop music or organised crime. Um, you know, fortunately, some people chose pop music. Um, the, the kind of... When, when pop then went middle class, which it began to do, you know, sort of post the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper, post the Beatles, progressive rock and all that kind of thing, literiness was usually very self-conscious and dropped in from above. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, 20 years ago, I mean, for example, Blur did a song called Country House, which referenced Balzac, but it was just a kind of rather self-conscious rhyme. You know, he's reading Balzac, knocking back Prozac. It went. It was very self-conscious, it, just to show that Damon Alban had read a few books. Um, what, I, what I find in Paul Weller's earlier lyrics is that the, the literalness is kind of bubbling up from below. I mean, here was this... This, he was 18, 19 at the time, uh, left school at 15 with no qualifications to speak of. But clearly, through some kind of osmotic process, you know, the virus of literature had taken up 
taken up residence in his veins. And he, he's not sort of consciously doing this. It's just how he writes and how his mind works. Um, uh, and you get these wonderful kind of, when, when I, what I mean by literary images, I mean, there's, there's, there's a wonderful song on their third album called Billy Hunt, which obviously borrows from Keith Waterhouse's Billy Liar, uh, you know, the fantasist. Um, you know, when I, got, when I develop my bionic arms, the whole world's going to wish it weren't born. Um, but, it, but it's not just these kind of... Um, shouted one, two, three, four lyrics. There are some wonderfully sort of senior alliterative bits in there where, where Billy Hunt suddenly decides that he's going to satisfy any whim that I wanted to. Perhaps we should have a little listen to that. That's, um, that's Billy Hunt and that's off the album All Mod Cons mm. from 1978. All Mod Cons is, according to Weller, the album where his his literariness, as you as you put it, um, is is that his word? I mean, that that's when it started I to show. I think he did though. say something. He started getting more literary, as he put it, at that point. But the the earlier stuff is still quite literary. I mean, there are references to 1984 on their second album. This is the modern world, where at the end of one song, his voice falls out, and remember, you know what happened to Winston, and it's Winston Smith he's talking about from 1984. Um, which again, you know, sort of sort of brought me up with a start when I first listened to that, aged I don't know, sixteen or something, back in nineteen seventy-seven. Billy, um, Billy Hunt is itself. It's quite, um, it's a quite perfect work of short fiction, really, isn't it? Well, this is the other thing about his early his early songs that they do have this. Um, I think it, it's, it's something he may well have got from um, some of those mid 60s Beatles songs songs like she's leaving home you know the Paul McCartney one off Sergeant Pepper but they they do tell little stories I mean the most famous the most the best known example of this I suppose is another wonderful track of all mod cons called down in the tube station at midnight uh, which is basically about this man coming back with a takeaway curry for his wife getting the last tube and being beaten up by some right wing thugs I think um, I think we're going to have to hear a little bit of that one yeah. as well <laughs> Faraway voices boarding faraway trains to take them home to the ones that they love and who love them forever. It starts out quite lyrically, this, mm. the, the distant echo of faraway voices boarding faraway, faraway trains. trains. To take them home to the wives that they love and who love them forever. I'm quoting this from memory. I've not even got the lyric in front of me. And then it all gets very sharp and hard and immediate. You know, I, um, uh, and he, you know, he talks about the lads are beating up. You know, they smelt of pubs and wormwood scrubs and too many right-wing meetings. The last thing I last saw lying there on the floor is Jesus Saves, paid by an atheist nutter and a British rail poster saying, have an away day, a cheap holiday, do it today. And it's, you know, it's, it's bringing cliche and slogan and sort of contemporary advertising into this extraordinary resonant little vignette of violence and horror down in the tube station. It sounds a bit like something from Anthony Burgess, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far Weller had got with, uh, with that. He was, a great, um, <laughs> he was a great one for sort of seizing on books and writing about them before he'd actually read them. I mean, for example, he, in 1981, there's a jam single called Absolute Beginners from the, Con- from the Colin McInnes novel. And I think he just thought it was a great... A great two words put together, and then he read the book afterwards. But you know that, that's not to um, you know that's not to 
um, under, underestimate, I think, well, the, the, slightly, the depth of his, his sensibility on these it's things. It's slightly reminded me in, in a different sense of, of, of something like Joyce and Ulysses, where you, you take things that are around you. And, mm. and Joyce did the same thing with cliches and advertising slogans, where you're so, you're so saturated in what you're describing that you then find a way of turning it into, into art. I think that's a very good point. And one of the other things I noticed about Weller's early stuff is this sense of walking through this kind of consumerist landscape filled with absolutely everything where sensations are dropping on you on all sides and you're sort of picking your way. There's, a, there's another very, very resonant early track of his called In the Crowd. Now, the crowd is a very, is a, is a big symbol in English pop music. You know, it's a, it's a great sort of that great collectivist repository. The mod, mod, the mod songs of the 60s always go on about crowds. And yet, um, you know, the, the, the weller or the persona who's walking through the crowd is sort of seeing all this stuff and responding to it, but still trying to preserve his own autonomy. And so one of the very interesting things to me about those songs is that um, although it's all communal, you know, we're all lads together, we're Saturday's kids. Well, I wasn't a Saturday's kid myself, but there's a jam song called Saturday's Kids. But at the same time, Weller is sort of very sharply exposing this collectivism. And at the heart of it is usually something very solitary, something quite vulnerable. And, and this was quite remarkable for the sort of rather angry, in-your-face British pop music of the late um, 1970s, which was quite a lot. It was very much rabble-rousing and confrontational. And this is too, to an extent, but there's a very sharp, vulnerable, sort of exposed, solitary core to it as well. 1976, 1977 is the Sex Pistols. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and the Buzzcocks. Mm. And that's mm. wonderful stuff, but that's not the same kind of sensibility no, at all. No, it isn't. And it's so, nowhere near the complexity or, or anything like that. They're not no, telling stories. As you say, it's more of a kind of battle cry. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You see, what the, what the, um, what, what the, 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 the punk explosion did, well, it was very influenced by that. I mean, he went and mm. saw the sex specials at a very early stage. And they kind of gave a conduit, you know, to the, the sort of song. Well, I think, I think one of the, the, the things that can probably be said about the punk explosion of 76, 77 was that it provided a very good vehicle for songwriters with genuine talent to make their first mark and then go on and do something else. I'm thinking of people like Elvis Costello, for example, yeah. exactly at the same time, or Howard DeVoto, who was the original Buzzcocks vocalist mm. and, and, and then famously went off to, uh, to found a band called Magazine who were influenced, you know, who wrote songs about Dostoevsky. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very good way of... They were a bit more self-conscious, though, weren't That's they? right, a bit more self-conscious. Whereas, you see, the thing I find about Weller is that he's not being self-conscious. No, not at it's all. Just, yeah. It's just how he writes, you know, I, it's how his words come out. I can't help but think of Ian Curtis, though, in there, because um, the same year that all mod cons came out, you've mm. got an ideal for living, and, and Ian Curtis is, he's very much, people have spoken, you know, John Savage and, and Robert Palmer, mm. I mean, not, not that Robert Palmer, have spoken about um, the literariness of his lyrics and mm. the influences of, of J.G. Ballard and... Uh, William Burroughs. It was said of that that whole Manchester music scene of the late seventies is again saturated in heavyweight, um, heavyweight sort of into you know, European mm, fiction. And science fiction. Somebody once said that there was there was a famous secondhand bookshop in Manchester which had stocks of you know old Russian novels, and that's where they went to buy their books. Mm. <laughs> and, and so you you know you as you say you get a Joy Division number like Dead Souls from um, from nineteen seventy nine, which is you know consciously based on on. on but well, well, it's not like that. It's just stuff he picks up in the same way that the songs um, the songs are full of sort of slight, there are odd biblical references as well, you know, so the boy who sat there at school assembly had oft, uh, just, uh, obviously this stuff had uh, sort of, you know, leaked into his cerebral cortex and is, is sort of coming out again and, and, this, this, and this rather ornate way of writing as well. I mean, there's deviously a... Deviously ornate, which I, I think is a lovely way of putting it, deviously Well, I'm, I'm thinking their very last single, Beat Surrender, you know, 
him. Mm. It's almost like a sort of Victorian love letter, and well as well as talking to his fans. And he says, "And I shall be forever beholden to <laughs> the bit beholden to." Fancy using a phrase like that in a number one to. pop single. <laughs> I shall be beholden to the beat surrender. I think that's a wonderful line. I was thinking about when when you say he's steeped in Orwell, and and that mm. that kind of makes a lot of sense because they're quite they were quite political. He's, he's quite a political animal, always has been. Mm. So you think, well, that you know that that makes a lot of sense that 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 he's read a lot of Orwell and and it's very influential. What I found more surprising was the kind of English pastoral, the wind kind of Peter Pan wind in the willows, which the, I hadn't... the English the English pop pastoral strain. I think probably it comes from Pink Floyd's Pipe at the Gates sure, of Dawn, 1967. Sure. But and then they are all about late 1960 stuff by bands like Traffic and, and so forth. Was, was, Absolutely, was but it's English pastoralism. But that's um, very much the middle class thing that you were talking about. That's public, isn't that more of it? Yeah, I think from growing up, and there's, there's some wonderful lines in the early songs. And he, he was born in Woking, and there are these lines about, you know, I, I know his solo album, Stanley Road, there's a line about, you know, the Surrey Hills, where I took my time. You know, that, that wonderful mm. idea of youthful sort of innocence and, and pleasure and so forth. And again, there's a line that uh, in Tales from the Riverbank where he suddenly the voice turns and says, but now you don't get so many for the pound. That's, that so sounds more like the Paul Weller that you might expect yeah, yeah, but it's rather than the person. You see, the, yeah, another, yeah. another classic, another classic sort of um, instance, I suppose, why he fits so well into that British pop tradition is the dolefulness. It's the doleful voice, you know, yeah. it, it, the, the slight sort of fatalistic air. And You mentioned Tales from the Riverbank. That's probably the last one we should listen to. To, uh, which we'll do now. This is a kind of Orwellian song, isn't it? It uh, is. There is, actually, there is actually a reference to it, to the golden country. The golden country, which Winston Smith talks about to Julia when they, when they meet that time, sort of somewhere west of London in 1984. He said, a golden country, which I've been to in a dream. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's, a, and, and that's a very precise I mean, reference. because you talk about Pop's buried literary sensibility. Mm. Um, uh, and we've talked about kind of Pop's sort of showy-offy, ostentatious literary sensibility, which you, you've referred to. Do you think there are other examples of where effectively uh, an education, sometimes a, a very basic comprehensive education, coupled with a lust for learning has led to other people doing the same thing, not showing off, just letting it just leach out into their music? You could imagine a situation now where a young Paul Weller would be hiked off to university and do a creative writing degree and all you know the, the hoops through which you have to jump to be a writer these days. And I think it would probably rather sort of warped his mind rather than, you know, allowed it to develop on its own terms. So I think it's, um, you know, I think in some ways, in, in terms of his particular art, I think this was the best way for him um, for him to develop is the fact that he was, the fact that he was un- undereducated, if you like, that gives him, his, gives him his distinction as a pop writer. Well, I think, uh, David, you've definitely made the case for Paul Weller. I'm so glad we had that conversation where you said well, you wanted... Well, we did. It was about 11 o'clock at night, wasn't it? It was 11 o'clock at night in a room in, a room in Soho after dinner. I said, I know what I'd like to do. And, and um, amazingly <laughs> enough, you said yes. Yeah. Great. How, much, how much had you been drinking at that? <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> amazing what he would agree to <laughs> at 11 o'clock in a room in Soho. No, exactly. it was, I, I fulfilled a dream. Yeah, talking <laughs> to you now, it has... Um, um, y- y- your kind of passion for it sort of leaps 
at oh, four, which is, which is wonderful. So thank you so much for writing and thank you for joining wonderful us. Wonderful done it. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. When I spoke to him the first time, you could tell how much he loved the jam. His enthusiasm and, is so clear. But the it? case seems to me to be incontrovertible. Mm. This is not someone who wishes the jam were more literary mm. and has kind of sort of squeezed it out there. No, it seems not to at be, all. It seems to be, and you guys like the jam. They, they're, they, they're a meaningful band for you, despite your youthful <laughs> aspect. <laughs> Um, no, I like the, I like the jam, and I had uh, I was saying to Thea earlier that I didn't like them on principle because my brother liked them. Yeah. So I knew, so it's that thing where you know all the songs, but I thought, oh, well, that's not mine. And then I realised actually, when you listen to it properly, it was really good. So I did know a lot of the songs, but I didn't get those references mm. at all. Actually, the ones I, I could remember is is yeah, they smelt of pubs and wormwood scrubs yeah. and the kind of stop up your beer and collect your fags. If you'd asked me. Before I'd read this, I'd have said... Do you know what I think is that David is probably a product of a generation uh, and we're probably half and half in this, the people who studied sleeve notes, Mm. where when you got an album, this was true of CDs as well, uh, where you basically, you read the, you know, the book of lyrics came with the album. Because you read the lyrics, not because of what they said on the back, but because, yes, because you actually read the lyrics. And the lyrics were there. And and if you really loved the band, you, you would look at you'd look yeah. at the lyrics, and I remember mm. you. You know, I used to write them in books yeah. at school and stuff. Like I was that. thinking about that on the way on the way in today, and I was thinking about how you would buy you know buy the CD. I would my generation anyway buy the CD and then take the sleeves out, read them all, rewrite them as you say, and then probably put the sleeve you know because it was always a kind of an accordion mm. sleeve, yeah, right. yeah. and then you'd paste it onto your wall with blue yeah. tack, yeah. Mm. and you would just yeah. be surrounded by the words, and somehow that. I remember my mum right worked thing. in a school in, in Leicestershire and we used to give her CDs and she should go and sneak in and, and photocopy and laminate them. And oh, lovely. Have, and then we'd have posters of the, of the CDs. I remember Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a which, fairly horrible yeah, one to which have is not, Which is not that... I don't think Guns N' Roses are that... It's good, very good record. Very good record. Arguably one of the best rock records ever, but not a literary record, I don't No, think. no, that's no. That's fair enough. Not, no, not a very nice cover, if I remember really rightly. It's sort of cross and black... Big gothic metal. <laughs> okay, no? can't remember it yeah. properly. Um, shall we move on? But uh, fascinating stuff. Well, let's move from pop music to all music. Stephen Brown has reviewed five books containing advice on how to practice it, listen to it, and appreciate it. It takes in Murakami's conversations with Seiji Azawa, Michael Hemp Hamper's The Crafty Art of Opera, and Fiona Maddox's Music for Life. The article considers Inter Alia, the Asian embrace of Western classical music, which Brown ranks as among cultural history's most startling phenomena. The rise of Mahler in the 1960s, the hundred most important classical works ever, and this startling question about modern background noise. What does a child today grow up hearing? The hum of traffic and medley of electronic beeps, the fracas of garbage trucks, whoosh of air conditioners, car alarms, leaf blowers, jets overhead, TV sets murmuring or shouting. What is the impact on musicality? of such a noisy world. Well, Stephen Brown can help us delve into all of this and joins us now. Okay, Stephen, well, shall we uh, begin with the rise of Western classical music in the East, which you refer to uh, relatively early on in in your piece? I hadn't really taken the trouble to think about, but when you, you mention it, it is a hugely important cultural event. What do you think accounts for it and, and, and how big a deal is it? I think that uh, Western music just fills a gap that um, that those cultures have. You mentioned that young string players the world over are taught according to the methods of the Japanese musician and philosopher Sinichi Suzuki. He didn't screen children for their abilities, so he 
he acted on the principle that any child had the potential to become a world-class musician. There must be something innate in terms of talent, must I mean, you've seen a lot of people as a music professor who you've taught music to. Is there a, do you think there is an aspect of innate talent within some people? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a funny thing within a, a music department. You know, you have you know, maybe uh, 200 students or something, and, and some of them are better than others, obviously. But even amongst those who are, like, like you know, the, the, among, among the best, let's say the bestest students and so on, uh, the professors will say, well, you know, so-and-so isn't really musical. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, it's just not uncommon to hear that. <laughs> Someone else might disagree with me, but I mean, I I I was still quite certain that I can hear musicality or, or not hear it. And, and 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 playing with other playing with other musicians also, you uh, like in in chamber music, you you have a feel for it. You're nodding to that, Lucy. Do you agree with that? Yes, and I don't. Um, I think, or I think, I think it is a gut reaction, and, and anybody can have it. Actually, I don't think you you need to have done. I think you need to know what the music is, but within whatever whatever music you know, if you've if you've got a feel for it, then then you kind of know if it's sometimes. And sometimes it's about personalities, but sometimes, but a lot of the time, there are people who can play the notes, but it might not feel especially it musical might not to you. Jump out, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Stephen. I was going to ask you if, if I met, the thing about the. Uh, kind of the primacy almost of Western classical music, because it's not only in China and Japan, is it? There's also this whole, the whole Sistema thing, you know, from um, Venezuela and the the way they're teaching the kids there, which is a bit the same sort of idea as a Suzuki, because all the kids are taught the same way, mm. you know, and, and, and again... And they're street they, kids, aren't they, very often? Absolutely, it doesn't matter what, where they are, but yeah, uh, uh, they are street kids, because a lot of it was just about getting them off the street. Um, but also that's, they've kind of revitalised certainly over here I think they've revitalised quite a lot of kind of rather stock classical works that people perhaps were a bit fed up of so it's not only it seems to me that it's not only about what you were saying about, about Chinese and Japanese culture it's it's about the way you approach that, that music do you see what I mean because it's a very European tradition what they're playing in Venezuela they're playing Beethoven and Bruckner and you know they're playing all the Austro-German stuff I, I do have a feeling that there is a younger generation of musicians who somehow are able to just like you know approach the music with some kind of uh, freshness to just uh, to not be constricted by um, you know, every other interpretation that's ever been heard and kind of you know, it's kind of like these revolutions that occur in religion where there you know there's layers of, of priesthood that pile up you know between you and God and then somebody comes along and says no no, no you don't need that you can just talk directly to God yourself. And I, you know, I think the same thing is in music. You know, every once in a while someone comes along and says, well, you know what, I don't need Sherkin. You know, I can just talk to Ludwig van Beethoven myself. <laughs> I saw uh, Dudamel's orchestra do Mahler, Mahler's Fifth, I-, I think, a few years ago. And uh, well, the Murakami book discusses the, the, the championing of Mahler by Leonard Bernstein. And my dad introduced me to Mahler when I was quite young. And I was slightly surprised... To, to, to see his symphonies are regarded as difficult because to my very untutored ear, it always felt kind of romantic and lush and sentimental. Uh, in what way do you think Mahler is 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 difficult or, or 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 I suppose the sort of Bernstein recognition that Mahler was difficult? Well, I mean, I, I always thought that, uh, that, that Mahler was lush, romantic and so on. In reading, reading that book, I realised that there's a whole other way of looking at Mahler, which is looking at him as 
as a, as a modernist. You know, my, my favorite, actually, um, piece of Mahler's, on my beloved's wedding day, in the midst of the, of the lush, romantic, orchestral texture, uh, and this little Jewish folk song just suddenly, you know, just appears. And it's, it's the chaplain, you know, but, but it's beautiful. And, it, and but, but that kind of juxtaposition of, of two different kinds of music in the same piece, it's actually very modernist. It sounds, um, the Murakami book, it sounds like, it sounds like an interesting book. I mean, do we, do we get a sense of how the conversations um, came about? I mean, one can speculate as to why Murakami, uh, a writer known for his mental and physical discipline and his studies of solitude, you can speculate as to why he might be attracted to a man whose own life and work are built on those things. Murakami is just the, the biggest fan of music you, know, you can imagine. Uh, he, he's so in love with music. Uh, it means so much to him. And he's, he doesn't really know anything about music in a technical sense. But, but Murakami remembers like particular moments. Like he says, well, right about four minutes and 30 seconds into the second movement, you know, you hear this. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's something I could never do. So I mean, he actually he understands Mahler on a, on a, on a level deeper than, than than my own. Before we go, Stephen, um, you reviewed Fiona Maddox's Music for Life, which is, proposes a hundred works for music to carry you through life. Um, perhaps just a way of ending this: Do you want to propose one or more than one? piece of music that you would add to that list or, or pick out from that list or what th- that someone should, should go and listen to perhaps hasn't heard it before the music that would carry help you carry you through okay well, how about that one i just i mentioned a minute ago on, on my sweetheart's wedding day by Mahler. i mean that's just astonishingly beautiful and you know crazy and and modern and full of emotion that that's a piece that could carry you through well, listen, uh, Stephen, thank you so much. As I said, it's a musical issue of the, the TLS and yours is the, the, the lead piece and it covers such a... We haven't had even a chance to scrape um, half of what you've, uh, you've been saying in your piece. It's a wonderful piece and thank you so much. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. 
That's BlueNile.com. For joining us. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I like, um, I like the sound of the Michael Hamper um, book, The Crafty Art of Opera. Um, well, we have an op- we have an opera person here. We do. I love the sound of all the, a- the aphorisms in it. I had to, I wrote a few down. Where are they? Oh, his lessons. Yes, for performers and audience. Um, things like the basis of understanding is who wants what from whom and why. Develop a feeling for greatness. It protects against stupidity. <laughs> but it is. It's really good. And actually, you, it doesn't have to be about opera. Because I, I, I started reading it, and it's true what Stephen says in the in his review is that it looks like it's supposed to be a sort of handbook. And mm. I picked it up because we wouldn't necessarily you know, do review something like that. But I started reading it and I thought it was brilliant because it's not just for opera. It's a manual for life. Well, well maybe, <laughs> maybe not all life. No, but certainly for performance. Because that, that point about, what did you just say? Where is it? What, 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 Develop needs... a feeling for... Oh, no, the basis of understanding who, who wants what yeah. from whom and why. Exactly. And that's, that, that's the basis. That's what people need to know when they're on stage. Mm. Otherwise, you get people just kind of wandering about. Mm. The basis or... of the West Wing. And life. Yeah. But if you're but if you're clear about it on stage, you have to be clear about it. Otherwise nobody cares what's going on. I mean, this is what actors train in. What's your motivation? That you know, that big cliche. It's, it's absolutely true. And he says these things very clearly. Mm. What do you want when you go on stage? Who are you talking to? Don't fumble. Don't fumble, exactly. We were talking about <laughs> this, Stig, with your um Shakespeare reviews when people sort of pick things up and start doing they, something else. Like your clothes, man who is, yeah. They take the clothes off ordinarily. Yeah, or the or, man who, that you had that was um, doing uh, gym exercises while he, he was. He was, he, was the, he did the side plank. Yeah, uh, there it you was go. Uh, in that's, King Lear. That's, that's fumbling and fiddling, essentially, yep. because you don't have enough um, belief in it. Is the, da- is the danger in opera that you either you have people who just stand there and belt it out with no sense of drama, or you have people who dramatise to the point where they're not singing beautifully? Is, is it very hard to get that boat, sense of a clean, dramatic action? It's, yes, it's hard, it's hard to do. It's just, it's just as hard in musical theatre, by the way. It's not it's not unique to opera, no. that. Um, but yes, it's one of the things that Hamper says as well. He says, um, one of them, he, he says to the singers, maintain your relationship with your partner, which is absolutely crucial. You have to do that anyway. Avoid the tennis turn, which the means, tennis turn? the tennis turn means, this is my aria. I'm now going to turn to the audience and sing it at them because that's, that's where you get the maximum volume and effect. <laughs> but I'm supposed to be singing it to the person next to me because I'm in love with her or whatever. Yeah. But actually, I'm going to turn around to the audience yeah. and say, I love you, but actually... Remember what you want (laughs) and from whom. And this is my high note. But that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be communicating you know, that you love her or that you've got to leave her or whatever mm. it is. But and, you're and not supposed to be communicating how good your top C is. That's not the point of the exercise. And we, we, you and I had a drink with Guy Deman, who's our opera critic mm, uh, of yeah. the TLS, a fine man. And he talked about being moved to tears fairly regularly mm. going to watch opera. Yeah, and yeah. Do you think that's a common reaction to it? I, can't. <laughs> I can't vouch for it. It certainly happens to me. Does it? Absolutely. Happens it to Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. There you go. It happens to all the best people, me and Guy and, <laughs> and Julia, Julia Roberts. Roberts in Pretty Woman. <laughs> well, that's what it should do. That's what when you go and see La Boheme. Yeah. You're not supposed to be kind of going at the end. Oh well, that didn't turn out so well. No. It's. I mean, it's you know, in Madame Butterfly. That's what we were talking about with Guy. Yeah. It's a. It's a tragic, tragic story. And somebody. It's also there's something quite moving, not just in the story, but I think the reason it's moving is because you can't sing that stuff without without being at the absolute peak of what you can do and without giving everything. You yeah. just can't do it. You won't get the notes out. You won't get the lines out. So in some ways, because I'm trying to think of the analogy with Shakespeare where now to move, a tragedy just to move someone, they people have got to make 
they've got to make an audience who doesn't speak Shakespearean English understand yeah. what's going on, the emotion, the, the, the heft of it. Yeah. And with opera, you often have to do that in a, in a completely different language that yeah. the audience might not speak. Is the music, I suppose, not a further barrier? It's actually a door... But it's also because it's a sort of physical effort, it's also, I think, a bit like watching an athlete. You're applauding the human effort and the emotion and the writing. But I find that know. off-putting because I saw Glenda Jackson in Lear for the paper and yep. that was an 80-year-old woman performing however many lines she has to know, which is 2,000 lines. It's a very physically demanding role. She's mm. By the end of it, she's sort of physically changed. She's sort of half strips at one point and then just gets sort of re- returned to a different costume. And there's this massive mm. physical effort. And you come away, I came away thinking is, oh my God, what a physical achievement, not least for someone of her age. And that to me, though, is a distraction rather than a compliment. Yes, I see what you mean. I think you shouldn't ever be worried about the actor or the singer because yeah. then then yeah. that's it, you've had it. But you, even you if can't impre- be worried But even if you're impressed them. by the athlete, because being, doing, doing Lear is a physical feat. Anyone yes. doing it's a yeah, feat of memory. You shouldn't be impressed by just the fact that they're doing it. Yeah, it has to be that you're moved yeah. by it and also they're going for it. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Because if they're not going for it, then how will you feel the full force of it? But you shouldn't just be going, oh yes, look how engaged they are. Well, because then you're not... I came out of that Lear thinking... Oh, Christ, how the hell did she manage to do that? Yeah. That's brilliant. But it was brilliant and she was very good. But but you were not t- sort of taken up with it. Yeah, I wasn't moved. Else. It wasn't at all. Mm. I mean, the, as a play generally, it wasn't at all moving. Mm. Um, well, that's kind of the job, isn't it? it is, yeah. As well. I mean, not, not, that's not well, the only is, job, but it's certainly part of I the I think job. it must be. Um, that's about all we have time for, alas. So let us thank the lovely DJ Taylor. Stephen Brown and the ever operatic Lucy Dallas. Uh, And let me remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week this year with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and much else. This week's paper, music special, thanks to Lucy Dallas, includes all you've just heard, plus New York disco at the beginning of the 1980s, hip-hop and black consciousness, and the Beatles on acid. We'll also cover Ginsberg and Kerouac, the love affairs of Francois Mitterrand, and black and Asian writing in post-war pre-Brexit Britain. And Lucy Dallas, I have been working for you this week, reviewing the new Twelfth Night at the National Theatre, which stars Tamsin Gregg as Malvolia. And so I've seen four I think Shakespearean productions for you in the last few months, three have had female actors playing the lead. Everything in Shakespeare is gender switching in the sense that all the women were played by boys yep, anyway. Exactly. So it's kind by of inherent. And twelve there. and twelve like that the pretty much the main gag is a boy plays a girl playing a boy. Yeah. So this feels very natural and normal to me and kind of adds to it. I mean I find with Midsummer Night's Dream when Helena's loves Demetrius, you end up with this sort of same-sex frisson. And actually in The Twelfth Night, there was this sort of Satobi Belch and Andrew Aigcheek same-sex mm. frisson, which was kind of interesting and sad and funny. Mm. So I think, I mean, is this the new tradition? Because I think someone in The Telegraph wrote a blustering piece, which I only read about four paragraphs of, because it sort of was harumphing so loudly I couldn't hear myself think. But this is the end of the role for male actors. Oh, because yes. because you women, you upstart women are coming in and taking the food from their mouths. Yeah. Well, you know, they have been doing it for 400 years, so I figure <laughs> we could have one or two. No, listen, I think it's just not... It, now what happens is that people think about the play and they think about how it would be interesting and they cast the best person. Yeah. And as you say, what it, what it does is add to the complexity and the richness. So I don't 
see how that can be a problem. There, there really is no lack of parts for male actors. No. That's really not the deal. And either I think it adds to it in the sense of it's already a com- comedy about sex swapping, which pretty much all the comedies exactly. are. Exactly. There's so much of it there anyway. That it adds to it. It's brilliant. Or in the case of Glenda Jackson, say, it actually didn't matter that she was a woman. Yeah. It just had nothing to do with it. Yeah. She was just a good actor and, and she happened to be a woman, but there wasn't even a thematic or broader point being made it was just here's and that because some and, and that seems to work on both ways doesn't it either yeah, you're absolutely. making a point or you're not making a point at all in which case so much the better but also uh, i mean reasonably recently there have been revivals of all male productions and there was no was there a lot of harumphing there i don't know but it's fine do all male productions do all female productions just do whatever yeah, i mean both I would, rather than instead of exactly and also as i say there there really have been a lot of all male productions but is this, do you think it's a trend is it i mean the the, the sort of it's the, quite yes well, it seems to be in yeah, that it's at the moment. you know the the rule of 3 yeah, no, three and, happenings. Yeah, it, but I think it's. I, I, I mean, I hope it's more than a trend because I hope that's just the way people mm. cast it now, rather than people going, "Oh, well, obviously I can't play X or Y." It's like, didn't Catherine Hunter? Didn't she play? Was it Leah? She played a big Shakespearean character ages ago, before anyone else did, and she was kind of an outlier, and everyone thought, "Oh, look, it's like a dog walking on its hind legs." How odd! <laughs> but actually, she's a great actor. Yeah, you know why can't she play that? I think the comedies particularly. Why wouldn't you do it? Because, yeah. cause especially are, the comedy. Because they are just there to, to be done. And Midsummer Night's Dream and Twelfth Night, it actually made both of those things more fun mm. and more interesting and more in-depth. In I don't think anyone and, came out of it thinking, oh, God, I wish they hadn't. And Tamsin Gregg, by the way, if you have a chance to go to this, it, she's absolutely mesmerically yeah. brilliant. And um, part of it, I think, is the audience likes her anyway and so she's famous. And so she has a slight advantage in that people are sort of selling her gags she's, as she's delivering she's them. She's done quite a lot of Shakespeare before as well. Yeah. It's not like she's she's not like a telly actress who hasn't done no, that no, before. But, she's but, done people, but people, people wanted they to like, like her. They just like her anyway, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I would say almost half of the gags in her are in the sh- in the play from her are just leaving a beat after a line mm. or staring at someone she's in the front row. She's a wonderful comedian. And the sort of physical gestures and pointing mm. at people and it was just this great lesson in in physical comedy, mm. and you know you couldn't take your eyes off her for the whole whole thing. She was like a rock star, and it was an you know, exceptional thing to watch. And Michael Caine's The Doctor, our great Shakespearean, he liked it as well. He liked it as well, which I was pleased about because I'd filed the review saying how much I liked it, and then he went to see it the day after and came back <laughs> saying he he really liked it. There we go. It's official. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although he did say, and I have to update you next week. He said I liked it all except for one scene. Oh, and then I've not yet confronted him about what that. What a cliffhanger! I know. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll find that out. Um, so yeah, so that's also in the paper as well. Uh, you can visit our website to read that the-tls.co.uk or anything else and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including. A really good piece by Sarah Perry on readability, arguing that books are not better for being difficult. Our own Adrian Tahordin on the scandals of the French presidency and Sophie Brown on what books can do to reform prisoners. You can follow us on Twitter at the TLS, like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. Next week, we really have a bumper spring books issue, 48 pages, which includes an extract from the hugely exciting new George Saunders novel, Lincoln in the Bardo and we should be playing, Theo, shan't we, an extract from the audiobook? Indeed. See if we can manage that level of technicality (laughs) for this podcast. Uh, And he mentioned it, so we should play out with Stephen Brown's recommended song. Theo, do you have the title? On on My Sweetheart's Wedding Day, The Marla. The Marla. On My Sweetheart's Wedding Day. 
so we will play out to that so until then from Thea from Lucy and from me goodbye A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.